There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've turned to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor to have you with us. Today's very special guest is former Senate Live cast member, Victoria Jackson. Victoria is an exceptionally busy woman. She was on Christmas con comedy, Jingle Smells, opposite John Schneider, Eric Roberts, and fellow SNL star, Jim Brewer. And she recently released her debut music comedy album. We'll be talking about her career, her successful, or should I say victorious battle with cancer, and more. And we might even have a few curveball questions for her. Join me for what I'm sure is to be a lively conversation with actress, author, comedian, and musician, Victoria Jackson. Victoria, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you, Chris. Uh, don't be thrown off by the frequent barking and interruptions. That's kind of what happens here. No, so my listeners and viewers all know my Shih Tzu Zeke, who's actually thankfully asleep next to me. So hopefully the UPS guy doesn't come, but that's part of the show. So we love dogs on here. Yay. So Victoria, I know you've done a million interviews and you had the same questions over and over. And I know when we spoke last week that you prefer unexpected and you even said off the wall questions. So if it's okay, I have about half a dozen. Is that all right? Yes. All right, here we go. And if you've heard these before, I'm going to be very upset with my writer, who thankfully is in Australia, so we won't know for another week. No, no, don't, don't be upset because inquiring minds want to know. And most of us do have the same questions, and that's okay. I'm sure I'll be repetitive at some point. Hopefully, here's a different one. All right. If you could have any historical figure as your opening act, who would it be and why? Oh, you look stumped. You tried too hard <laughs> to ask me something that wasn't, how did you get on Saturday Night Live? Well, I wouldn't want Jesus to open for me because, because you know, it's a comedy show. That's too hard. You stumped me. Okay, fair enough. We'll move on. If your life story were turned into a sitcom, what would be the title and who would play you? Uh, Twinkie, and I think who would play me would be, or the title could be Born to Suffer. My friend wrote a movie called that, and it was so perfect for me at that time. I said, can I, can I, uh, can I steal your title? You're not supposed to steal titles, but it's, it's not illegal. Um, let me see. Who would play me? I think this girl named, oh, I gotta look up her name. I gotta look up her name. All right. Do you want me to go on to the next question? We'll come back to that. Yeah, next question. If you had to perform- hard. <laughs> I want the boring, predictable ones. We've got 48 minutes more for those ones. Don't worry about it. We'll get to them. <clears throat> If you had to perform a stand-up routine in an unusual location like Mars, the North Pole, or even underwater, where would it be and what jokes would you tell? No, you you, you tried too hard. These are ridiculous. All right, we've got... I want the boring ones. All right, how about uh, two more? I don't like being underwater. My father forced me to scuba dive when I was a child and it's terrifying. And a stingray with the flapping wings chased me. Uh, and what was the other one? Space. I don't like outer space. And I don't like flying. What was the other place I could do my act? North Pole. Oh, I love snow. Okay, there you I go. Would, I would do it at the North Pole. Perfect. That's Perfect. a great question. One question solved. I love it. And I'd look for Santa. You'll find him. If your jokes had the power to solve one world problem, which problem would you choose and how would laughter be the solution? <clears throat> one problem. 
That's too hard. All right, we're moving on. I don't think laughter would solve our world's problem. We're going to get into that. I know. <laughs> Maybe crying in repentance. <laughs> we're almost there. If you were a superhero, excuse me, a superhero with comedic powers, and I think you already are a superhero, what would your superhero name be and what kind of jokes would you use to save the day? This is ridiculous. All right. Mike, you're hurting my brain. It is insane <laughs> right now. My superhero name would be Luke 137. That's a perfect and my one. My powers is the Holy Spirit. There you go. All right. So if you had enough of these tough questions, we have time for one more. One more, one more. All right. Last one. Here's the last one, I promise. And then we will get into those questions you've heard before. So here we go. If you had the ability to time travel and perform for any audience in history, which era and group of people would you choose? My favorite era is the 30s and 40s. Um, I like the clothes. I like the sort of they had morality still in the general population. Uh, what was the second part of the question? Uh, time travel. Okay, I hate time travel. Don't like the movies or the sci-fi of it. It hurts my brain. Don't get it. I don't get time travel. But I love the 30s and 40s. All right. You survived. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> I, thought, I found the name of the lady who I think could play me. Who's that? Lee Allen Baker. Lee Allen Baker. I'll have to look her up. What, what has she been? Anything I know? She was in a hit family sitcom. I forget the name of it. But she's a Christian, conservative... And she's younger than me and skinnier than me. And she's a great actress. I think she could do me. Yeah. Perfect. Well, we'll actually reach out to her and see if she'll be on the show. Have you both on. Yeah. All right. Let's get to the easy stuff. Let's talk about your childhood, which obviously you've talked about. But a lot of our audience doesn't know about much. Your dad was a gymnastics coach. From the time you were five until you were 18, he trained you in gymnastics. Gymnastics obviously requires a lot of discipline, time, energy, and focus. Did you enjoy it? Oh, ah. We won't tell I, your dad. I, I did. No, my father's in heaven with my mother. I think he's teaching gymnastics up there on golden <laughs> equipment. All the little girls who died too young, I think that he's teaching them glide kips on golden bars and round off back handspring, back with a full. Uh, my old beam mount uh, jump handstand, press up into a front walkover. Um, I did not enjoy it at the time. It was uh, hard and it was the family business and none of us in the family were interested in it. My brother would be under the bleachers trying to entertain himself, being ignored because my dad only taught women. My mother just loved my dad, so she'd just be there. And I didn't want to be in a leotard in front of people. That's like being naked. And uh, we had to do like 100, 200 sit-ups every day. And I mean, like I worked out like three hours every day for my whole childhood. But I do miss being in, I do miss having a coach because that really makes you do it. I, I miss being in great shape and I miss the feeling after a two hour workout where you're all covered in sweat and all your muscles inside, it just feels so good. So looking back on it, it was a wonderful childhood and it was really taught me a lot of things. It taught me discipline, but I'm, I'm getting bad on discipline lately. Well, I, I'm getting, I need my coach back. Fair enough. After high school, you went to Florida Bible College, but you transferred to Furman on a gymnastic scholarship. How did Furman find out about you and decide to offer you a scholarship? Chris, you're so matter of fact. <laughs> I want to know about you. I'm boring. I have my 30 pound Shih Tzu Zeke next to me. He's taking a nap. Hopefully he won't bark. I got a 25 pound. Uh... <laughs> Fantastic. 
Taking a nap. Uh, Zeke, mine's named Hezekiah. I couldn't even begin to spell that. It's in the Bible. I know. I can't spell that stuff very well. I got Luke. It's four letters. Okay. Well, Hezekiah was a good king, and um, I named her that because I, when I was surviving cancer. Okay. Um, what was the question again? How did Furman find out about you and offer you a scholarship? Mm, that's a good question. No one's ever, ever asked me that. Ever. The show is a show first, so we can mark that down. What? What college did you go to? Uh, undergrad, Syracuse University. And right now I'm at USC getting my doctorate. In what? Organizational change and leadership. Who's asking the questions here? Who's the interviewer? Did you say circus? Organizational change and oh, leadership. The first one, the undergrad. Did you say circus? It, it was a bit of a circus. Uh, it's Syracuse. It's oh, cold like the North Pole. Syracuse. Yes. I thought you said circus. Like I said, sometimes it was. My dad wanted, uh, took me to go to the circus college in, in Florida. Where is? Okay. Um, how did Furman find out about me? Well, let's see. My best friend, Elizabeth Litzenberg, she always made straight A's and I made almost all straight A's. So we kept each other competing in high school and in our Christian high school. And uh, she was going to Furman and I didn't know where to go. So, I mean, I went to Bible college, but all you could major in was, well, for me, was English or getting married. <laughs> we didn't have other choices. Uh, it was like preachers, preachers' wives, and English. So, and so then I went to Furman to be an English major, and um, because of Elizabeth. And then when I was there looking at the campus, I told them I could do gymnastics, and that's how I got a partial scholarship. Mm -hmm. So, also when you were at Furman, you were casting your first play. Tell tell that story for us. Did your homework. We, we've got some good writers here. I that is so that is so sweet. Um, <clears throat> my first play, I was going with my friend because she was going to audition. I didn't know anything about acting or plays, and the director named Rhett Bryson, who is still there, I think he's eighty or ninety. He uh said, why don't you audition? I said, I, I don't know anything about this. And he goes, well, here, just read these lines. And it was the ditzy um, Greek slave, you know, whatever. She was ditzy. And um, he gave me the part. And when I did it in front of a live audience and they laughed, I made them laugh. It was a drug and I wanted that drug again. I've been seeking that drug the rest of my life. Were you looking for that specific role or just any role you could get? I wasn't looking for any role. I was just there with my friend. And um, I think Rhett Bryson saw in me the perfect dits, you know, character and gave me that role. And that was the perfect role for me. And I, I, I was feather dusting the door flirting with the other Roman slave and um, that made the audience laugh. And I, and it was like a, a rush of power that I could control the whole room. So you talk about, you know, that drug and the rush of power with the laughter. Did that make you want to become an actress or a comedian? Uh, I didn't know anything. I just wanted to do that again. So I'm like, how do I do that again? I guess I should audition for more plays. And then I couldn't afford Furman, so I went to Auburn, and they would not cast me in any place, or they'd give me, like, one line. And I was like, how can I get good at this if I have one line? And so that's what made me audition for Summer Stock, where I met Johnny Crawford, who flew me to Hollywood. It's like you're reading my script now. Well, these are easy, because I've said these before. Those first questions... My brain is going to hurt the whole day. I'll make sure Eric is aware of that. He'll probably listen to this tomorrow when he wakes up in Australia. So I, I'll appreciate that. So you finish at Auburn. You go to Hollywood. When you went to Hollywood, your agent asked what you could do that no one else could. 
and you said you could hold a handstand longer than anyone else. And he replied, how am I supposed to sell you as a serious actress if you're doing handstands? Did you want to be serious like Meryl Streep or make people laugh? Okay, well, that story is a little bit not correct. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, fire that writer. Eric, fire you hear that? that? You're done. You're done. Uh, this is important. The world's peace is based on this. Um, let's see. My agent didn't ask me, what can you do that no one else can do? I thought that in my own head. I was like auditioning against 30 blonde homecoming queens, all my age, poor skinnier and more experienced and all that. And I was like, what can I do that they, how can I stand out at this Coke commercial? You know, like Pepsi, I love it. How do you stand out? So I thought, well, I could do a handstand. My, uh, I can hold a handstand for a minute. No one I know can do that. And, um, so I, I would do the lines upside down occasionally, and it worked some of the time. Some of the time they just went, Aah! but some of the time they're like, and then they would give me the part. Like for um, Gap Jeans, I got the part from doing a handstand. But um, anyway, so my eight, but the truth is my agent did, when I finally got an agent, he did say, could you please, Mark Teitelbaum, could you please stop doing handstands? I can't sit, sell you as a serious actress. And I was like, huh. But, but see, I, when I was at college, I tried to be in Shakespeare. And my teacher said, I don't believe that you just killed someone. And I was going, I wipe the blood from my hands. And, you know, she did, didn't think I could pull off being Queen Gertrude. But I was trying, and I said, but I felt it. I felt like I killed somebody. Yeah. So the doors closed in Shakespeare, and they opened in the ditzy roles. <laughs> so obviously gymnastics was a big part of your acting success, but succeeding in acting or comedy requires extraordinary discipline. I'm sure you saw your share of fellow actors and comedians who quit. There you go. Exactly. Did discipline gymnastics reinforce your persistence and determination, and especially in those tougher times? Yes. Um, for one thing, my favorite verse is this, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. But but my, my stick-to-itiveness was for, well, number one, my father said, if he said, Christianity and showbiz don't get along very well together. But if that's what you want to be, give it 100%. So that was stuck in my brain. Also, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might, you know, as unto the Lord. And my other reason was, well, I didn't really have an alternative plan. I wanted to get married and have babies. And I was engaged in 78. But my husband, who I'm with now, his father said, you're too young to get married. You're not allowed. So that was my first dream of life. I had the kids' names picked out and everything. The wedding date, everything. So I was like, oh, I'm not allowed to get married. Well, I'm not allowed to live in sin with him. And I could either be a secretary in Miami in my home or be a secretary in L.A. and chase this whim of this acting thing, whatever it is. This is the only time in my life I could pursue something whimsical because I know I'll be married with kids someday. So that's why, what was the question? No, just the, it's the discipline of becoming an actor or comedian. Well, the discipline and the constant rejection, you know, it, it, it hurts, but it didn't stop me because I knew since I was six, when I got saved, when I trusted in the Lord Jesus as my savior, I knew that my purpose in life was to tell other people the gospel, that Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected for our sins, and that we could have eternal life with him forever, John 3, 16. I knew that my purpose was to go into all the world and preach the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I knew that was my purpose. So 
if I got rejected in show business, I was like, okay, well, then where does God want me to be preaching the gospel? Because wherever he puts me, I'm going to be preaching the gospel. My father exemplified that for me because he, when he was a gymnastics coach, he would witness to the gymnasts like Maureen Fowler. Um, he called me over one day and he couldn't remember anything, names or Bible verses. So he goes, Vicki, tell Maureen John 3.16. And I said, oh, she doesn't know it? And uh, she said she was Catholic. I said, don't Catholic people know John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then um, when she was dying of breast cancer at the age of 36, she came to see me at a stand-up show in North Carolina. And she had a hat and a wig on. And she said, Vicki, it's Maureen. I was like, Maureen! And I hadn't seen her since she was like 12 or 14. And she said, I want to get, I have cancer and stage four. I want to get in touch with your father to thank him for being the first person who ever told me about Jesus. And uh, she said, I trusted in him as my savior this year. And so did all my kids. And uh, so she was in touch with me and my dad until she went to heaven. And um, so, yeah. So getting rejected from an acting job wasn't like the end of the world because I had a higher purpose. A moment ago, you mentioned age six, you were saved. And then you talked about your father was the first person to have your friend, you know, accept Jesus. Age six is an awfully young age for such a, a heavy thought or concept. Were your parents very religious? I mean, that's it just seems at age six, I'm playing with Tinker Toys and Tonka trucks, not thinking about being saved by Jesus. My parents were, my mom got saved. That's the Baptist way to say it. Ask Jesus into your heart. Get born again, born again, however you want to say it. When she was about 12 at a tent revival meeting in Minnesota, and she said it changed her life, and she knew that she wouldn't be alone, that for her whole life, Jesus would be with her. And her faith was very, in Jesus was very strong. Then she married my dad, and she sinned because she was not supposed to marry an unbeliever. And and so she would take him to church and tell him about the Bible. But he became a Christian when he was about 35. And he was just, you know, studied the Bible all the time, taught Sunday school 50 years. He would read it in Hebrew and Greek and underline. And he had the book, um, the uh Oh, I forgot the name. The cult, Kingdom of the Cults. He had the, uh, and he would show us what a cult was. He had the, um, what's the Muslims? Quran. Yeah, the Quran. He would. He really wanted to know the truth, and and I. That's my favorite thing that my parents gave me. My dad especially. So I have a hunger to study the Bible and. Um, my yeah so when i was raised my dad treated kids like equals like they were grown up and the bible says we need childlike faith in christ and the thing about the gospel is it's simple enough for a child to understand but the bible is deep enough to make theologians study it for their whole life and still not figure it all out or have all the answers so yeah, I totally got the concept when I was six that Jesus died for my sins, and I could only think of two sins. I was like, I was mean to my brother twice, and I got the concept that I probably would sin in the future, and that he died for those, and and I, I got it. It wasn't so hard, and uh, yeah. So like most actors and actresses, you didn't have overnight success. You had to spend years honing your craft. And here's another instance where the only person on my team old enough, which is Eric, to remember this, but you were on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and eye-popping 20 times. What was your bond with Carson, who was a comedian in his own right, and what was your first time on his show like for you? 
I love telling this story. Well, I I did spend years honing my craft, but not, but it was pretty quick. I mean, considering whew, the hard part has been the last twenty years, but the easy it's easier to be a twenty year old skinny blonde. A lot of doors open. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that, but. Uh, Things are a little easier. Um, basically, I was doing stand-up for two years at the Variety Arts. I, I figured, how can I get an agent? I don't know. How can you get an audition? You have to have an agent. So I thought, well, stand-up comedy is a new thing, 1980. There wasn't very many women doing it. I thought, well, if I could just do stand up, even if I'm not good, someone in the audience might go, she'd be a good ditch for our sitcom. And that would be great money, something I could do. That's something I could do. And so I started trying to hone the six minutes, hoping the Tonight Show, Johnny Carson would discover me. Um, did it every night at my cigarette girl job, cigarettes, cashews, at this 30s club. And the boss let me do, let everyone who worked there do six minutes with the microphone. And um, one night, the Tonight Show talent scout came in there. And um, actually, I'll show you a picture. I, I just thought you'd get a kick out of this. Okay, so this is the guy, John Shrum. I had a baby then. He was sitting at the Variety Arts Center. He did the set design for Johnny Carson. And he must have told the talent scout, this guy, these guys are all passed away. This guy was a talent scout. And this guy's Doc Severinsen, you know. Yep. And that's my first daughter who is now 38. She's a Christian writer, speaker. Scarlett Hiltabidal. So... Those, so, so that guy, oh, here's Ed McMahon. This <laughs> is funny. I, I have, I have pictures of Johnny, but they're in scrapbooks. So anyway, um, <clears throat> what it was like was, <clears throat> Jim McCauley goes, would you like to be on the Tonight Show? I was like, yes. And so I was standing backstage and he was shaking and he was going to open the curtain and I was going to walk out to my mark and do my six minutes. And I said, why are you shaking? I'm the one who has to go out there. And he goes, because if Johnny doesn't like you, I lose my job. <laughs> and people couldn't figure out whether I was a genius or, you know, stupid. They couldn't figure it out. Because my act started out with me singing bad. <clears throat> But I think singing bad is funny, but it remained to be seen. So, anywho, uh, so I went out there. Johnny liked me. He gave me the okay sign. He asked me back. So Jim did not lose his job. And um, I thought the next day that I would be just, you know, recognized in the, on the streets. And nobody recognized me. I went to a pet store to get a memento, a memento of the night. And I went up to the lady. I got a fish because I didn't, I didn't have a house or anything. I had an apartment. And I said, um, what were you doing last night around 1130? And she's like, what? <laughs> yeah. I oh, never mind. <laughs> so, uh, but then uh, the 30 times, the 20 times, one of, one of the times Gary Shambling was my was the host. 18 were with Johnny, one was Leno, one was with Shandling. And that's Gary Shandling with my baby. With your baby. Yeah, I took her everywhere. But um, good old days. So your appearances on The Tonight Show led to a pilot of a MASH spinoff that didn't make it on the air in a short-lived TV series before audition for Sunday Night Live. Now I'm told by Eric, that you never saw Saturday Night Live before you auditioned for it. Is that true? I don't think I ever saw it because we didn't have a TV when I grew up. And I knew the show, you're supposed to be funny, but I didn't really, I didn't really know impressions or characters. I had never watched it. Um, 
So the whole time I was there, I was trying to figure out how to make up a character or an impression and how to get more airtime because Lauren cast us because it was everyone out for themselves. And the writers, they would just write things they thought were funny. They didn't necessarily write it for you. So the whole six years, I was like, since then, I've figured out what SNL is, and I figured out one character. My name is Harriet. I'm a blue-blooded liberal from my head to my toes. Why do I love Obama? Cute baby pictures, herb garden. You know, I'm a commute. Oh, I'm skipping it. Uh, no. But anyway, I stole that from a lady who was making fun of her ex-husband's new wife. And I was like, Fran, could I could I steal that? I've been trying to make up a character my whole life. Anyway, all the newspapers said, you're the character. She's the character. But anyway, Lauren just thought my audition was funny and he gave me the best the best job of my life and he was very nice to me and he knew I was a Christian and I asked him once if I could not be in a sketch because it made fun of prayer and he said I understand no problem I mean you know we wrote our own stuff so nobody forced you to do anything and um yeah I, rem I remember walking down the halls there and I thought man this is how did I get here this this must be my mission field because I never wanted to go to um, Africa because I was afraid of the snakes and the bugs. Because when I grew up in the Baptist church, all the missionaries were, went to Africa. And I was, and then when I was eight, I went forward. I said to this sermon about Isaiah, whom shall I send? And I went forward. I said, I, I'll go. I'll go out and tell the gospel. But could I please not go to Africa? Anyway. When I was at SNL, I was in the hallway going, oh, he didn't send me to Africa. But, um, yeah, I think I was the only Christian in the cast. So a moment ago, you mentioned that everyone was out for themselves at Saturday Night Live. Was that scary? Did you fit in? Were you accepted right away? How was that transition like for you? It wasn't easy like a sitcom where they write you your lines, you already have the part. That's an easy job, a sitcom. This one was competitive. It was very, very stressful. Um, the, the other cast members were, some of them were super nice to me, like John Lovitz, who I'm still in touch with. And Dana Carvey was nice to me. Kevin Nealon was nice to me. Um, some of the people were two of the people weren't but everyone else was very respectful and my christianity wasn't an issue it was um it wasn't an issue my job was to be funny and um i did give the cast the bible on cassette one christmas because i i thought how can I tell them all the great things i know about the bible just passing them in the hall i didn't I had a baby, so I'd rush home after work. I, I was the only one with a baby. I, I didn't hang out. So uh, I thought, hey, if I give them the Bible on cassette, they could put it in their car when they're driving home for Christmas and hear all this wonderful stuff I know. The Holy Spirit could speak to them. So one of the cast members returned her gift. Um, I wrapped them up like a Christmas present, put it in front of their doors. And one, one girl, she returned hers, said, I already have one. But, um, but uh, I, we got along great. Everybody got along great except for a couple, you know. Because I, lately I've been, I stumbled on some of these SNL articles and I see some of the things that they're saying and some of it's not true. Some of it is true. You were known for your recurring roles where you impersonated Roseanne Barr, Sally Struthers, and Zsa Zsa Gabor. How long did it take to get an impersonation down pat to the point you're confident to do it on national TV and that the audience truly appreciates it? <laughs> well, like I said, I'd never done it before. So I went up to Smigel and I go, how come I never get to do any impressions? He goes, because you're nasal. And I go, aren't there any celebrities who are nasal? And he goes, well, Roseanne Barr is. I go, don't you kind of talk like that? 
And he goes, yeah. And I go, well, let me do her. So he wrote, he wrote me as Roseanne. And I listened to her all week in my headphones, all day and all night so I could do her. And I did her and I pulled it off. And, and everyone there was like, you did it. And oh, and right before I went on, I was so nervous. And Dana Carvey, who's the master of impressions, he go, I go, Dana, what if I, what if I slip out of Roseanne and I start being me in the middle of it? And he's like, cop an attitude, cop an attitude. I was like, I don't know what that means, but so uh, I guess it meant just have confidence and just be Roseanne or whatever. I don't know. So, um, and then they let me do Zsa Darling, I've worked all over the world. I mean, just fun to be with you. So I went to a dialect coach to get help with that. And then um, they let me do other things. Sally Struthers, it wasn't hard. It was just like being me. But they put me in a fat suit, which I don't need to wear now, which is kind of mean. And when I did meet her years later, she looked a little hurt, you know, and... Uh, the show makes fun of people and they say that um, the highest form of flattery is what's it? Um, imitation? Yeah, yeah. Imitation is the highest form of flattery, but it's also could be cruel, you know? So, um, so I was torn about that, but I didn't have that many characters to do. And then Roseanne, when I first did her in a fat suit, I ran into her in a, um, a gift shop after that. And I said, Roseanne, um, I, I don't know if you know me, but I, I did you on Saturday Night Live. She goes, oh, I know. You do me better than I do myself. <laughs> and um, I was like, oh. And then I got to be on the show with her, doing her. And Chris Farley was Tom Arnold. I mean, these were such fun times. I'm 64 and I'm still talking about them. Do you have a favorite cast member? Hmm, that's too hard. Or do you love all your children equally? I love them all. I pray for them and I love them all. Even the ones who are mean to me. All right, so we'll, we'll stop with Sunday Night Live questions. I don't want to bore you anymore with those. Is it okay if I throw one more off the wall question at you? How you did know, I get on SNL? You, you nailed it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there's the short version and the long version. But the long version is so good. You can keep okay. going if you like. Okay. So um, I was a working, I was an out of work actor. Well, I was an actress. I had a baby and I had a husband who did not have a job. He was a fire eater musician and great piano player. And so I had to figure out how to pay the mortgage. I bought my house in LA in Laurel Canyon with my first acting series, the Half Nelson with Joe Pesci got canceled. So um, I, was doing a, I was doing a commercial in the desert for a truck and I come home and the phone rang and my Kermit the Frog phone and uh, I picked up Kermit's leg and they go, would you like to audition for Saturday Night Live? And I go, uh, yeah. It wasn't even my agent, William Morris. It was a stranger. It could have been a joke. And they go, okay, well, there's a ticket waiting for you at LAX. Be there at 8 a.m. Like, okay. <laughs> and they go, bring your characters and impressions. I was like, Okay, so I I left the baby with the fire eater, and I brought my ukulele and my handstand because I did not have any impressions. And then I went to the airport. They put me in a hotel with 12 other women from Canada and America. They walked us down the street the next day past the uh, big guy holding Atlas statue 30 rock we go to the phil donahue studio we had to wait outside one by one go in lauren was in the room with his bowl of popcorn and one beautiful young girl working the video camera and um i did my six minutes from johnny carson in my french maid costume because that's what i used to wear when i was the cigarette girl and and then 
they called me at my hotel that night and they said, don't leave. Lauren wants to speak to you tomorrow. And so I called the fire eater and I said, they want me to stay one more day. And then the next day I went into Lauren's office, but you have to wait an hour or more because it's very important. And first of all, I said, when should I come? And they said, anytime after three. And I was like, well, what, what time? And they're like, he comes in around three. So I was there at one minute to three. And so I sat there for an hour for him. And so then I went in his office and he said, mm, you had a very efficient book. And he said, you know, are you married? Oh, I'm married, I have a baby. He goes, but I'm not sure you're strong in characters and impressions. And I said, and then he was like getting up, like ushering me to the door, like it was over. And I said, but, um, uh, but I, I could talk like this. And he goes, <laughs> and I go, oh, I could do a character like this, talking like this. And he goes, <laughs> and he goes, what if I wanted you to be a Midwestern housewife? And I go, well, um, my parents are from the Midwest and I am a housewife. And he goes, uh, what if I wanted you to be Diane Keaton? And I said, well, I would wear men's clothes and look at the ground a lot. And he's like, <laughs> so I leave, I'm flying home to LA and I go, man, I was so close. And I thought, hey, I'm gonna be on Johnny Carson in two weeks, it's already booked. What if I continue my audition for Lauren on Johnny Carson? It's gotta impress him. And I'll just learn some impressions before then. So Jim McCauley said, that's fine. Don't say the name of the show. We don't want to be sued. Tell them you're auditioning. You have to do impressions. You're auditioning for something. And so I, I was vacuuming and taking care of my baby. And I was watching these VHSs of Tina Turner and Diane Keaton. And I realized I'm terrible at audition uh, impressions. I thought, well, <clears throat> if I can make people laugh, that's the point. Who, you know, I don't have to be the best in the world. That would be Rich Little. I could just, you know. So um, I went on Johnny and I went, uh, can you guess, I'm auditioning. Can you guess who I'm doing? And I went, um, well, first one I, oh, Johnny, I don't know why I'm here. Do a commercial. I don't have anything to say. And he goes, Terry Gar. And I go, yeah. And then I go, um. What a way Glenn Miller played. So made the hit parade. Oh, and he goes, Edith Bunker. I go, yeah. And then I go, what's love got to do? Got to do with it. And he goes, Tina Turner. I go, yeah. And then I go, John, why do you want to work for my company? And then he goes, I don't know. Uh, Betty Davis. And I go, no. And he goes, I don't know, who is it? And I go, I made her up. And then everyone laughed so hard. And then I knew I got SNL. And then I told my manager, what if Lauren Michaels didn't see me tonight? She goes, well, I'll get him the VHS. So she put it in his mailbox in the hotel. She found out he was staying in. And, and then they called me two weeks later on my Kermit the Frog phone said, congratulations, you're in the cast of SNL. Fantastic. And scene. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. It's it's fascinating. And congratulations on an unbelievable career. Uh, it's obviously built up a lot of resilience in you personally, professionally. And that personal resilience leads to your battle with cancer. Oh. How did that resiliency help get you through? Well, I, uh, it's not in my family. And um, so... I was kind of surprised. I was uh, I couldn't get rid of this cough. So I went to the urgent care and I said, I can't stop coughing and I got a numb spot right here. Um, and then the guy goes, you're going to the breast clinic. And I go, what, what? And so basically when I was in the lobby, I was, and they found like a spider shape right here. I, I was like, Lord, this is not good. And Paul, I'm, I'm on an interview. My husband's cooking now. What's he making? Uh, his morning ritual is pear, apple, broccoli, carrots, all raw vegetables and fruits. It's very healthy. Way too healthy for me. Huh? Way too healthy. I Way know. too healthy. 
So, um, so I said, Lord, I know all the Bible Bible verses. I know Joshua one, you know, one nine. Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. King James. I know. Uh, I know I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I know all these verses, Lord. I need I need a fresh one because I can't. I need your and 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 God. I was flipping through my little devotional by Anne Graham Lotz called Daily Light, and uh, it's just scripture. It's not anyone's opinion on the scripture. That's why I love it. And this verse popped out at me: Psalm forty-three, five. Why art thou downcast, O my soul? Oh, you know, why are you discouraged? Hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my God and my something, Savior. And um, I, I was like, thank you. I can get through this if I know I will yet praise him. It might be in heaven. It might be here, but I will be praising him again. So I don't know that God knew that I needed. I just needed that. And so I went and did the test, had double mastectomy, chemo for five months, radiation. Um, and so that year of treatment in 2016, uh, my coworker, Saturday Night Live coworker, Jan Hooks, the most brilliant actress I've ever met, she died of cancer. We were both like 57 when I got diagnosed and she died, she died of cancer. So. So then uh, what was really interesting to me through that whole year was it kind of proved to me that I had faith in Jesus because my whole life had been reading the Bible, studying the Bible, memorizing scripture. And, and I was like, now I got to walk the walk and not just talk, talk. And I was laying in bed. And I was too weak to, to t pick up the remote to change the channel of the TV, and I remember thinking, I'm at peace. I'm okay. I feel like Jesus is standing right here, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of excited. I mean, I, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. It's a win-win. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. I, I get to meet God face-to-face. -face. I mean, kidding. Uh, and so I... I, I was taught that my faith is real, even though, you know, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And he said, all you need is faith the size of a mustard seed. When the disciples said, help, give us more faith, Lord, because I doubt all the time. Every day I'm like, why am I talking to an invisible man? You know, and then I remind myself that the Bible is archaeologically accurate scientifically accurate, um, historically accurate. And I have to keep telling myself, oh, oh yeah, that's why. Um, but yeah, so that's what cancer did for me. It, pr it, it proved to me that my faith in Christ was real. And then I wrote my two best songs on the ukulele when I had cancer. One of them's called it's a broken world, baby. Um, tattoo, uh, I know you agree. The second law of thermodynamics says the world is in a state of entropy. That's a fancy word for broken, you see. It's a broken world, baby, since even Adam gave in. But there's a new world coming. That's why my song has a grin. Jesus is coming soon, morning or night or noon. I'm going to meet him in the sky, in the twinkling of an eye. So that song came to me. And then my other song, Lavender Hair, came to me. Um, he sees me as soft, not heavy. He hears me as wise and not dull. He thinks that I'm super terrific when others think nothing at all. He sees me as funny yet not silly and graceful as Fred Astaire. And he doesn't notice the gray. He said I have lavender hair. And that was about my husband. And because um, when my when my bald head, when my hair grew back in, it was gray. And uh, my friend said, Judy said, 
it's not gray. It kind of looks lavender. So that was the inspiration for that. And then my husband said, yeah, yeah, it looks lavender. So that, so that. Those are my two favorite songs, and they came out of cancer. My theory is all good art comes from pain. And I think a lot of God's greatest teaching and stuff is from when we're suffering, unfortunately. We've got about two minutes left. Any parting words of advice to lift ourselves up and feel more empowered? All you need is this. For with God. For with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing's impossible for you, Victoria. That's for certain. And as someone who lost her mother to breast cancer at age 56, I appreciate and understand what you went through. And so thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Chris. You're a great interviewer. And I'll be thinking about your first seven questions for the rest of my life. <laughs> and so will Eric. He's got a big smile on his face. Victoria Jackson, it was an absolute honor and pleasure to visit with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. And thank you so much to our listeners for being with us today, which now includes people in over 50 countries for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details on upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.